There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. In the late 14th century, Robert de Hotot, a nobleman from Northamptonshire, got into an argument with a man called Rigsby over some land. The pair decided to settle the dispute with a joust. But shortly before the match was due to take place, Hotot fell ill with gout. Unable to stand, let alone mount a horse and fight, Hotot feared he would have to forfeit his land, but his only heir stepped forward to take his place. Rigsby was unseated from his horse. The champion strode over to the defeated man to take his surrender. Standing over him, the champion removed the helmet to reveal long flowing hair. Next, the breastplate was removed, showing her breasts. Everyone could see that Rigsby had been beaten by a woman. Agnes de Hotot, Robert's daughter, had rescued her father's honour, won the land and thoroughly beaten her opponent. This is an aggressive, medieval woman defeating her opponent in a deadly sport. She's not behaving as we expect medieval women to behave, but it's our expectations that are wrong, not her behaviour. She's a normal woman, and I describe her and many like her in my new book, Normal Women, 900 Years of Making History. I'm Philippa Gregory, and I'm interested not only in the famous heroines that we all know, but also in the women we don't know, those who behave in ways we expect and those who surprise us. Joining me remotely from Melbourne is philosopher of science and psychologist Cordelia Fine, whose books Testosterone Rex and Delusions of Gender explore how science has used flawed methods to maintain male and female stereotypes. And trans non-binary A&E medic Dr. Ronk Sicaria, best known for presenting Operation Ouch and the Gender Diagnosis podcast. We're going to discuss if normal women have ever fitted the mould. Or is it true that normal women are beyond definition? Men have always claimed that there is such a thing as female nature, and they've described it with great authority. But do we think there's such a thing, Dr Runks? So I do believe that there are some things that are perhaps innate in our DNA, but it's difficult to feel that <laughs> overall there is a way in which females behave. 
because ultimately who decided this? A lot of ideas such as uh, innate female male behaviour Sometimes we have to think about who writes these things. And for me, a lot of things in medicine are white Eurocentric constructs. We do place a lot of value on perhaps women who are portrayed gentler, softer behaviours. However, when women step up and are more assertive, for example, if you go back to African countries... Black women are very assertive, very confident, generally, if I'm generalising, compared to, I would say, (laughs) women in this country, regardless of their background. And because we are used to certain tropes, we then label anybody who deviates from that white Eurocentric norm as problematic, despite saying that having masculine overtones or whatever are favourable. And Cordelia, yes, tell tell me what you're thinking. Yeah, I mean, I think this is this is a sort of ongoing tension in the science of sex differences. I mean, John Stuart Mill, the famous political philosopher, a few hundred years ago, or 150 years ago, he sort of made this quite provocative claim at the time, which was, I don't think that we can know the true natures of men and women given their you know, the relations of inequality that uh, currently exist between them. And, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, that seems like a really obvious point. Of course, the history of it goes back even further than John Stuart Mill. The Greek philosophers believed that there was a spectrum of sexuality from hyper-male to hyper-female, and that any person might sit anywhere on the mixture of male and female and even move from majoring in one sex to another. Diet, heat or sexual experience all might change a woman who was mostly moist and cold to a man who was hot and dry. Greek physicians believed there was only one human body with sex organs inside for a woman and outside for men. And exercise or shock might cause a vagina to pop out of the body and turn into a penis. (laughs) I have to say... (laughs) We just lost Dr. Ronks at that one. In the early Christian church, there were more than 35 legends naming cross-dressing women saints where holy women denied their femininity, dressed as men, as a permanent choice. In the early Christian church, there were more than 35 legends naming cross-dressing women saints where holy women denied their femininity, dressed as men, as a permanent choice and the apocryphal Gospel of St. Thomas specifically says there is no sex in Christ. Jesus said, See, I'm going to attract her to make her male so that she too might become a living spirit that resembles you males. For every female that makes itself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. Cordelia, do you have any sense of the Greek's idea of there being a sort of a... a, a different ways of being, but not not two, not a choice of two? Um, look, it, it, it's not terribly familiar with me, but when you were describing it, I was actually thinking about the sort of evolution of how people think about sex differences in the brain and how the, the, the sort of Greek way was sort of what I'll call phase two. <laughs> so first of all, there was this idea of distinct male and female circuits in the brain. 
And then that sort of evolved into this idea that there's a continuum uh, from masculinity to femininity. So, you know, recalling this idea of sort of uh, hyper-masculinity at one end and hyper-femininity at the other end. And everyone's brain can be, you know, and hence presumably their behaviour, thoughts, feelings, etc., can be located on this continuum. And now it's in the light of evidence that sex differences in the brain, while they do exist, they kind of mix up instead of adding up. Wherever sort of very heterogeneous people's brains are, are all very different, these sex differences in the brain don't add up to create two distinct categories. People have kind of unique combinations of more female typical or more male typical brain characteristics. And so you can't predict what someone's brain is like on the basis of whether they themselves are male or female. And you can't really tell how similar their brain is going to be to, to anyone else's. So to me, the Greeks were kind of in this, perhaps on this more this sort of continuum phase of things that kind of, to me, echoes contemporary sort of scientific thinking. Dr. Ronks, you were giggling helplessly <laughs> at the Greek story. I swear that it's a it's a story which turns up in, it comes from the Greeks, it turns up in all the medieval medical literature of a peasant girl chasing a pig has to jump over a ditch. And in jumping over the ditch, the penis, which of course lives inside <laughs> her as a vagina, pops out and she is from there after a man. And that's great because men are superior to women. So it's a nice transition for anybody to make. I mean, does the idea of the Greek spectrum of sexuality, does that speak to you? Uh, I think just society is obsessed with putting people in labels which are related to the gender binary. And when it comes to people like me or trans women or trans men, that's where people then get confused and angry because we're not fitting into the boxes which neatly, as far as I'm concerned, benefit the patriarchy. <laughs> But you'd be great with the Greeks because they didn't have boxes. They had this sort of rainbow, this stripe. They did. Where you could be at any point on it and but you I, could move from one point to another on it. Absolutely. But I, then I struggle with the term hyper-feminine and hyper-masculine because it's a great term if it came without hierarchy and weight, if that made sense. So people might describe me as a hyper-masculine female and there's something about that which then almost uh, suggests that I'm rejecting being female, which I'm not necessarily, and wanting to be a man. And then that puts weight on masculinity as being better than femininity. And then if you describe a, a, someone who was born male as hyper-feminine, it's almost an insult. Before the 1660s, we see that women are often praised for their manly nature. To the medieval mind, a woman could have masculine characteristics. The Plantagenet queen Margaret of Anjou, who led the Lancastrian faction during the Wars of the Roses, was described by diplomat Polydore Virgil as... A woman of sufficient forecast, very desirous of renown, full of policy, counsel, comely behaviour, and all manly qualities. The interrogator, who failed to break the devout Catholic Margaret Pole in 1539, said, We may call her rather a strong, constant man than a woman. Lady Anne Barclay, who ruled Gloucestershire for two decades from the 1530s, was described as A lady of a masculine spirit, overpowerful with her husband. The Countess of Westmoreland, 
who raised armies against Elizabeth I, was said by Sir Thomas Tempest to rather playeth the part of a knight than a lady. Our most famous queen, Elizabeth I, deliberately claimed manly strengths. Though I be a woman, yet I have as good a courage, answerable to my place, as ever my father had. In her famous speech at Tilbury, on the eve of the Armada of 1588, she even claims to have manly organs. My loving people, I know I have the body of a weak and feeble woman, but I have the heart and stomach of a king, and of a king of England too, and think foul scorn that Parma or Spain or any prince of Europe should dare to invade the borders of my realm to which rather than any dishonour shall grow by me, I myself will take up arms. I myself will be your general, judge and rewarder of every one of your virtues in the field. There is this sort of legacy of putting a greater value on masculine traits. I mean, I think one of the most classic examples of this, which I sort of first really thought about when I was working in a business school as I was teaching judgment and decision making. And, you know, this is the ways in which our biases can interfere with our good judgment. And, you know, number one bias that we teach is overconfidence. Overconfidence can be disastrous in a business and other kinds of settings. And yet in workplaces, there has been this fashion, women need more confidence. We send women off to self-confidence training, which is, you know, another white middle class European stereotype. We should be sending men to sort of humility and modesty workshops, right? But it would never, never occur to, to anyone to run such a, a workshop. The sort of high, higher valuing of sort of masculinity gets built into sort of policies and practices. And one example that an organisational scientist pointed to is this idea that we tend to uh, valorize managers and leaders who are kind of heroic. So there's some kind of crisis and they'll solve it. <laughs> and there's much less value put on quiet background work that prevents the crisis from arising in the first place. As a black trans non-binary human, I have had the privilege, and I speak about this a lot, of seeing how people react to me depending on which gender they think I am. So, for example, as I'm dressed as I am now with a shirt, jeans, I present very mask, so very masculine. And if at work I may be wearing more baggier clothes, patients perceive me as male and listen. When I'm perceived as female, maybe when I'm wearing slightly different clothes or people just default to the fact that they think I'm female, people are a bit more rude to me, I would say. I'm called darling. And I would say, please don't call me darling, call me doctor. Oh, no, 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 I'm, uh, you're darling. I said, no, you can't call me darling. My male colleague's here. Would you call my male colleague darling? Oh, no, 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 that's doctor. So as I uh, look more masculine, it definitely is interesting to see how people respond to me. I feel as though people want to know my gender so that they can place me on their hierarchy that they have in their head, that they can decide how they will talk to me. They can decide how they'll interact with me. They can decide... Uh, what my social currency is. After Elizabeth, who deliberately wore male jackets and claimed masculine traits, came James I, who was supposed to restore order. He commanded sermons preached against women wearing men's clothes. The insolency of our women and their wearing of broad-brimmed hats 
pointed doublets, their hair cut short or shorn, and some of them with stilettos or poniards and such other trinkets of like moment. Of course, because these records are so old, we often don't know why women were dressing as men. They were often rowdy like young men, noisy in the streets, playful, carrying weapons, breaking the class rules in fabrics and colours above their station. Sometimes it's clear it's a festival costume, sometimes it's for safety, sometimes it's as disguise, and sometimes it's to live as a man. Moll Cutpurse, famously dressed as a man, was both violent and criminal and masculine in behaviour in the 1600s. She was named Mary Frith and born in the 1580s. She fought in the English Civil Wars as a royalist and held up a Cromwell officer, General Fairfax, on Hounslow Heath outside London when she was working as a highwayman. She stole a huge sum of money, shot at him, killed two horses under his servants and galloped off for six miles until her horse foundered under her at Turnham Green. She only escaped the gallows by buying a pardon, paying General Fairfax £2,000, a fortune. She dressed in breeches and doublet and smoked a pipe. She won national fame as the heroine of a play by Thomas Decker called Moll Cutpurse, The Roaring Girl, and she had her own stage show. Moll was a celebrity in her day, but there were probably millions of women missing from the national history of England who lived quiet lives as men. Yeah, and there are loads and loads. And this is what people who archive determine is important and it's because they're being shamed for their behaviour as opposed to now where there are a lot of kinds of gender historians and etc. usually in small collectives who are trying to find these people and celebrate them for just existing. Amy Poulter, the wife of Arthur Poulter, dressed herself as a man and named herself James Howard and courted 18-year-old Arabella Hunt, a famously beautiful professional singer and musician at the court of Queen Mary, who could have had her pick of the men at court. Their summer-long courtship was approved by Arabella's mother, and James married Arabella before witnesses at St Marylebone Parish Church in September that year. The young couple lived together in Arabella's mother's house in the capital's Haymarket for six months, and then... Arabella applied for an annulment at the consistory court, claiming that her husband James was one of a double gender, an hermaphrodite. Amy apologised. We did forthwith forsake the company of each other and have ever since lived apart from each other as we ought to do. I know well that I was in error and that I was then and still am a woman and a perfect woman and no man and no hermaphrodite or person of double gender. The couple separated without any punishment and Arabella continued her career as a court musician. Amy died just five weeks later. I'm so glad I'm, I was born in these times because I would have been burnt at stake and I really feel for Amy. She probably was essentially a lesbian and um, unfortunately felt that she had to dress as a man to receive the love that she felt that she deserved. 
There's nothing new in people existing outside of the gender binary. There is nothing new in women wanting to wear masculine clothes or identify as mask and vice versa. There's nothing new in it. It's just that the powers that be now see this as political fodder and also don't want to make changes to allow this. In the 1600s, there were officially three sexes. Sir Edward Coke, the law expert, ruled that there were male, female and hermaphrodite. The problem that interested him was not gender fluidity, but keeping the wealth of the country in the hands of men and their male heirs. He said that hermaphrodites must choose the sexual identity that prevaileth and keep it permanently. To him... The danger was if a man, inheriting property, changed into a woman, they would put a woman in charge of land or fortune that ought to belong to a man. That was what bothered them then. Not identity, but inheritance. You can't have free choice of identity because it conflicts with the male dominance of wealth. Look, it'd be hard to disagree with that statement, but I mean, I think from my perspective, there's something broader here, which is about um, the sort of stratification of society, you know, whether it's through the big axes of oppression, sex, race and class. We have, you know, roles that we want people to fill. And some of those roles are associated with more status and power over resources than others. And so those identities, those social categories become extremely Important. They're at the sort of basis for very important uh, social distinctions. And now those sort of gender-based legal norms have, have gone, but there are still these sort of informal norms, exactly the kind of things that Dr. Ronks was talking about before. It's kind of, you know, rewards for gender conformity and penalties for gender nonconformity, regardless of, of who you are. I've got an example of someone in the 18th century who was at the top of their society when they identified as a man, and even stayed pretty near at the top of society when they identified as a woman. This is Charles de Ion de Beaumont, 1728-1810, raised as a boy in order to inherit the family estates and noble title. As a man, he became a French lawyer and intellectual, serving as a French diplomat, a captain of the dragoons, and the leader of the French peace delegation. But he dressed as a woman to spy on Russia and entered London society as an aristocratic lady, Leah de Beaumont. The King of France paid for a trousseau of women's clothes and identity papers for Leah de Beaumont to return to France. A contemporary described them. He was made to resume the costume of that sex to which, in France, everything is pardoned. The desire to see his native land once more determined him to submit to the condition but he revenged himself by combining the long train of his gown and the three deep ruffles on his sleeves with the attitude and conversation of a grenadier, which made him very disagreeable company. In August 1777, Leo de Beaumont took male identity and wore a grenadier's uniform to volunteer for military service in the American War of Independence, but was refused and ordered to continue to wear women's clothes. Leah went back to London, and when she lost the Dion fortune in the French Revolution, she made a living by teaching fencing. She wore a full silk gown and a pretty cap, and gave fencing displays with the actress Mrs Bateman, 
at the Haymarket Theatre in 1793. Leo de Beaumont died at her home in London, aged 81, and a medical examination revealed male genitals in every respect perfectly formed, breasts remarkably full, and unusual roundness in the formation of limbs. Leah seems to have made a transition from male to female roles and appearance quite freely and with the approval of her society and even government. Do you think it was easier for her then than it would be for someone now, although in our society we think we're so much more tolerant and permissive? Ronks. Gosh, I feel so sorry for these people. Bloody hell, it's... It's just so it's just so hard to be yourself. Um, easier or hard? I, I it depends in which society, which country, which rule, which p- p- the politics at the time. Um, in terms of my friendship group and the people that have curated around me who exist as they want to exist, and we accept them every single second of every single day, regardless of what they tell us. Um, I would say yes, but in the greater world, I would say. It's just as difficult. And I guess when I'm at work or even just walking out and about, things are a little bit more um, thought out for safety because ultimately I don't want to die because somebody doesn't like the way that I look. Do you feel on a daily basis a fear of your safety? So I am somebody who is extremely quick-witted and I I'm very aware of dangers. So it's not that I don't feel safe. It's more that I'm more, I think I think about my existence in space in different places more than perhaps you might do or Cordelia does. That's not to take away unsafety that you might feel as a female. It's more that people right now are disinhibited and feel that they were able to say, what are you, a man or a woman? Even at work and even this week at work, I've had patients question my gender and people think it's their right to know how you identify so that they can relate to you in the way that I guess that they've been socialised to. So lots of people feel unsafe who are genderqueer. Cordelia, do you think that the interest in gender, which we've had obviously since the Greeks, Do you think that that's becoming more risky for people who want to transition or want to present differently? Do you think it's becoming weaponized? Absolutely. Um, Dr. Ronks be able to speak to this um, much more personally in a far more informed way than I can, but my, my sense from the other end of the world looking at the UK is that like my sense is that there's been a kind of um, back, you know, significant backward movement in terms of tolerance towards trans people than there would have been perhaps, you know, five five years ago or uh, or longer. Whenever these debates, uh, whenever these debates began, but I mean, I think there's to sort of to step back a bit and think at a, a sort of maybe a bit more abstract level. It seems to me that there are kind of three gender ideologies kind of competing on this stage. And I'm using ideology in a non-pejorative sense in the set of like a set of beliefs and values. So there's a kind of gender conservative ideology, which, you know, has always been with us. You're born male, 
you present in a masculine way, you behave in a masculine way, these are your roles, these are your occupations. If you're female, completely different story. You dress in a feminine way, these are the circumscribed things that you can do, right? Then there's a kind of two kind of ideologies that are kind of attacking that gender conservatism. And one is this idea of let's get rid of gender norms altogether. Let's abolish gender. Your natal sex shouldn't matter. There shouldn't even be a conception of living as a woman, living as a man. We should all just live as humans. And then there's another one, which is, well, let's let people kind of identify with whichever gender category they like so that the sex that, that they're born with does not sort of determine how they should present and, and so on. We'll still have our gender categories, but it will be your subjective sense of your own gender identity that you know you determine which of these gender categories that you belong to. What I'm scared of is that gender uh, transness, gender diversity is politically weaponized and that we are moving towards times where Actually, um, you have to decide if you're male or female, even if you're trans. You have to be trans man or trans woman. And that's how people want society to be organised. And if you deviate from that, you are a deviant. I'm worried that we're moving towards that. However, I spend a lot of time with young people. My life, I'm surrounded by young people. And I'm excited because a lot of them identify as pansexual. A lot of them understand the problems with gender norms. A lot of them are interrogating who is archiving, who is doing studies, why studies are being done, interactions with trends and social trends with capitalism. The students who come tend to take my classes tend to, to, tend to be very passionate about topics of sex and gender, um, they're very they're very compassionate. They're very socially justice minded. Um, I guess as an educator, one thing that I try to do is, you know, my job is not to impose my own views on them, but to give them, you know, various perspectives, scaffold them so that they can read the material and they can think about it critically. And they can make up their own mind and make sure that they're listening to um, to other perspectives as well. And as you can probably imagine, you know, given the current climate and the current politics, that's a sort of it's a challenge to do in the classroom. It, it's hard for the students, I think, regardless of which position they come from. So I I spend a lot of time trying to first of all explain to them why it's you know, why it's important, you know, why academic freedom is important, for instance, and, and why that's such a core value at universities. So students are wonderful. They're a, a really fantastic bunch. We've just closed up semester and we, we had a discussion in the last week that I felt like it was the highlight of my teaching career. They were so brave. They, 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 they discussed a controversial issue, uh, you know, beautifully, respectfully, thoughtfully, uh, it was an absolute model of constructive disagreement. I was so I was so proud of them. After the break, we're going to see just when the idea of two sexes and only two became binding in law, overwhelming previous ideas about fluidity or multiple sexes. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. 
At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to Normal Women Are Beyond Definition with me, Philippa Gregory, and my guests, trans non-binary presenter, podcaster, and A&D doctor, Ronx Ikaria, and Cordelia Fine, academic and author of Testosterone Rex and Delusions of Gender. In this part, the invention of two sexes and only two sexes. In the 1700s, The intellectual fashion that we now call the Age of Enlightenment swept Europe, demanding that everything be labelled and categorised and put in order. Commentators decided that there were only two sexes completely opposite, male and female, in order to justify keeping women out of male institutions and opportunities. A century later, in England, the law now demanded the father of a child decide the sex of his child at birth and register him, or her, there were no other options, with the authorities. There was no way to make the judgment but on the first appearance of infant genitals. Any baby with a small penis was called a girl, because it was thought better to be a girl with a large clitoris than a boy with a small penis. That's been the working practice till modern times. A little boy was dressed in pink, as it was a strong colour, while for a little girl it would be pale blue or pale yellow. As academic Joe Paoletti recorded of the 20th century, The cherubic white dresses of infancy, once worn well into the third year, shifted in less than a generation from being exactly right for babies to not only wrong, but harmful for boys. A boy was not a girl and should never be mistaken for a girl. Banishing white dresses was just the beginning. Lace, ruffles, gathers, flowers, kittens, and a sizable portion of the color spectrum were all eliminated from little boy's clothing over the course of several decades. The 18th century philosopher and educationalist Jean-Jacques Rousseau was clear that girls must be trained. If the timidity, chasteness and modesty which are proper to women are social inventions, it is in society's interest that women acquire these qualities. They must be cultivated in women. Author Sarah Stickney Ellis wrote in 1843... 
boys were accustomed to a mode of treatment as much calculated to make them determined, frank and bold, as that of girls to induce the opposite extremes of weakness, artifice and timid helplessness. We see from the late 1700s that people are deliberately teaching gender roles to children. Children develop a sort of explicit sense of their gender identity between the ages of about two and three, and that becomes very motivating for them. They've noticed in the like two or three years that they've been alive that there are these two kinds of people, and then once they know which side of that tribe they're on, they become very motivated to sort of internalise those gender norms. And, and if they don't, and there are always people who are nonconformists, there'll be peers around or perhaps parents, depending on their circumstances, who will kind of be willing to give them a, a gentle or not-so-gentle nudge in the right direction. The strict division into two sexes only broke down in a time of national emergency, when the First World War pulled men into the trenches and women had to replace them, moving into what had been male work, wearing men's clothes. After the First World War, the phrase sex change was used to describe people who dressed and lived outside their birth sex. People began to transition, most of them from female to male, and described feeling that they had been assigned the wrong sex at birth. London's Charing Cross Hospital became known as an international centre specialising in medical and even surgical help, where patients would usually be allowed to freely choose their sex. After the Second World War brought huge advances in surgery, the number of sex changes increased. One change invoked the old 1600s ruling that property and title must go to a man. Laura Maud Dillon, 1915-62, the daughter of a baronet, attended a women's college at Oxford, competed in the women's boat races in 1935 and 1936, studied medicine and surgery, and transitioned, changing her birth certificate in 1944 to Lawrence Michael Dillon. At once, she was no longer the mere daughter to a baronet. He was the son of a baronet and the heir to a baronetcy. The transition was announced, of all places, by a new entry in Debrett's peerage in 1958, which showed a brand new male heir to the baronetcy. Of course, this was a huge disappointment to the male cousin who would have inherited the title if Laura had identified as a woman incapable of inheritance. By the late 1960s, both law and public opinion tightened and people were only prescribed drugs and surgery if they could convince a panel of psychologists medical doctors and surgeons that they should live as the opposite sex. But the panel had been raised in a two-sex world and trained in the 1950s during the revival of the conventional female stereotypes. Men who wanted to become women had to claim to want to be a cliché of womanhood. American sociologist James G. Raymond writes... Many expressed a preference for female dress and makeup. Others saw their feminine identification in terms of feminine occupations, housework, secretarial, and stewardess work. Some expressed feminine identification in terms of marriage and motherhood, 
wanting to meet the right man, have him take care of me, adopt kids, and bring them up. One expressed very definite views on child-rearing that were quite ironic in this context. I would definitely teach my kids that boys should be boys and girls should be girls. Male patients who wanted to transition to become women were warned. How do you know you can make a living as a woman? Have you ever worked as a woman before? I assume that so far you have only held a man's job and have drawn a man's salary. Now you have to learn something entirely new. Could you do that? Could you get along with smaller earnings? It's a sort of darkly comical thought that doctors are saying that bad pay is part of the intrinsic nature of being a woman. Yeah, well, still still a live issue today, of course, with the persistent gender pay gap, though perhaps we wouldn't put it as sort of part of the nature of femininity to be badly paid uh, quite so explicitly as that. Yeah, these are, you know, glorious gender stereotypes. Absolutely. Unfortunately, at that point, uh, point we're talking, people, if they wanted to transition, they were expected to perform the extremes of gender, which I think is absolutely ridiculous. It didn't make allowances for nuance. The people that were often making decisions to who can or cannot um, transition were white men who have been socialised as white men, who believed, as they had been socialised to believe, that women behaved one way and men behaved a different way. And this is the the problem with medicalising gender services is because the people that are offering these services aren't usually people that live in the societies or communities which are seeking that medical help. And medicalising it until recently meant that you needed to see a psychologist or psychiatrist. Being trans or being gender divergent or gender deviant, as it was used to be called, was um, pathologised. And I don't see my existence as a pathology. I just see my existence of a nuance or just a variation of this beautiful spectrum of life that we live within. And that is the problem with medicine. Women were defined by male doctors and psychologists and their definition was used to test people born as men wanting to transition to women. But the definition of women and femininity has changed over time. For instance, the belief that ladies were almost completely lacking in sexual appetite in the 1800s was upended a century later. Scientists' conception of what feminine sexuality in particular was changed with the sexual revolution. So it started off as being, you know, very prim and proper and it was all about weddings. <laughs> and, you know, there was this sort of, over time, it became a little bit uh, uh, saucier, so to speak, like women actually have sexual desire and they might even want to have casual sex and they might have fantasies, you know, they might actually be quite like men in their sexuality in many ways. And so what was counted as feminine sexuality changed it evolved as cultural norms changed but but the it's almost as if the scientists didn't notice that what they were trying to attach to the prenatal hormones had really significantly changed with cultural change can i just say yeah, so please, it's interesting because i would say within again it's about the people that are doing the sampling and the scientists because i would say if we talk about sexual revolution etc 
it there are different the sexual revolution is different in queer communities and in straight communities queer communities um casual sex um sleeping with lots of different people has been something that has never had a a kind of promiscuous label to it or a negative label to it. And it's the cis population that needs to catch up with that. It was so interesting hearing, you know, hearing that quotation from Rousseau, you know, girls have to be instructed in their particular roles. Because when scientists were starting to get interested in the kind of endocrinology of sex, sort of in the 60s, 70s, you know, the last century, at the time when they were writing, the gender politics was such that they just took it for granted that to be well-adjusted was to conform to the gender roles for your sex. But then as the sort of second-wave feminist movement in the US, North America and Europe, etc., was rising, people like Anne Sterling were saying, hang on a sec, like, why are you saying that this is like to be psychologically well-adjusted is to, to conform to these gender stereotypes? And there was this sort of really interesting shift that's described in Rebecca Jordan Young's book, Brainstorm, where they sort of shifted from prescription, like this is how girls and boys should be, these gender roles, to we're not saying that that, that females should be like that. We're just kind of saying it's in their hormonal, on their hormonal nature. That's when that became attached to this idea that it was the hormones that were drawing people to these gender roles. So when you look at the science of people trying to link prenatal hormones, these sort of hormones that are experienced while the baby's in utero, to later gendered behaviour, when you look closely at them, it's kind of extraordinary, like, you know, very quaint gender stereotypes, very localised to particular time and place and culture, as we've already discussed. Do you like romance novels or adventure novels? You know, would you rather sew or paint the house? I mean, these are the kinds of questions that come up in the questionnaires. And the scientists are trying to link these very culturally bound gender roles or gender stereotypes to early hormones. The word gender was used from the 19th until the middle of the 20th century almost interchangeably with the word sex. But then the definition of gender was expanded to mean behaviours and then to describe identity and then self-identity until the arrival around 1980 of a new term, gender disorder. By 2020, it was called gender dysphoria, when there was an apparent contradiction between someone's sex and their gender, their behaviour or how they felt themselves to be. Trans people find themselves inside a heated debate. The thing that I struggle with is that um, it's hard to hear that my existence is a debate. It's hard to hear that my existence is even spoken about in politics. Being a doctor, I'm all about centering human beings and wanting human beings to live the most fullest life that they possibly can, identifying and presenting as fully as they can because, you know, this for me is the only life that I get, so I really need to live it fully. And um, when I when people speak about, you know, a woman is a woman and we know what a woman is, it it's like what it makes no sense. It really honestly makes no sense to me because if we want to centre people and we want the best for people, we don't tell people what we think they should be. As someone who just doesn't put value on gender, sex, race, etc. I just want people to live. So it's hard for me to have these conversations because I just don't see the world as I just I just want people to be. 
In 1990, the idea of two sexes only was challenged by the work of Professor Emerita at Brown University, Dr Anne Fausto-Sterling, a leading expert in biology and gender development who identified five sexes, which she refined into a controversial theory of gradations of sex on a continuum and suggested we should talk about gender sex, since biology and culture are combined. Whatever someone does becomes imprinted on their neuromuscular response. The culture shapes the body. And equally, activity stimulates hormones. For instance, gentle, nurturing parenting reduces the testosterone found both in women and in men. In 2007, Eric Villane of the Epigenetics, Data and Politics Laboratory at George Washington University proved that sex was based not only on the genitals, but also on the X and Y chromosomes and on all the hormones present in the body. Each category, genitals, chromosomes and hormones, has multiple variants. He said, An infinite combination of biological genders exists, far more than the five sexes proposed in the 1990s. Was the word gender invented to avoid the challenge there are many sexes? It comes into use at a time when it is once again being suggested that there are more sorts of people than two. You're really taking us into some (laughs) controversial territory, aren't you, Philippa? Um, I actually teach a whole week on what is sex in uh, in one of my university classes. And there's a lot of talking past each other, I think, on this particular topic, because a lot of science cares about the sex categories. So are you male or are you female? And we're going to divide you into two groups and we're going to compare you. Okay. Sex category isn't a mechanism. It doesn't explain anything. Is it hormones? Is it genes? Is it the social environment that you've lived in? Is it some interaction of of all of those things, right? So you haven't actually explained anything because sex category, it's important for evolutionary biologists, might not be that important for neuroscientists, for instance. What they need to do is then look at what's correlated with sex, whether it's genetic, whether it's hormonal, whether it's social, whether it's all of these things, and work out what's actually going on. Is this a sex difference or is this a socialization difference? Is this a height difference? Is this a weight difference, right? It's really important. Um, so we need to have lo- lots of diversity in science so that we're not sort of just testing our hypotheses on a very restricted, homogenous group of people. And of course, females have been excluded from that medical research, both as sort of research uh, animals and as, as people for too long to their detriment. So looking ahead to the future, um, I don't even know who to ask first. Looking ahead to the future, Bronx, I'm going to yeah. go to you first. What do you think is going to happen in the future and what, do you, and what are your hopes and fears? Uh, future. My ideal future would be that um, everybody could exist as they want to and um, there was no power or oppression or weight put on people's um, exist- chosen existences, which may vary from day to day. So I'm excited for the future. I'm worried that it might not be my future and um, I'm worried for the safety Um, mental health safety and physical safety of lots of people who just don't want to fit into uh, gender norms or the binary. Cordelia, how do you imagine the future? 
I'm really interested in the way that gender norms and gender ideologies, um, you know, evolve over time. I guess that's sort of a question for historians and sociologists. But you know, we have seen the shift away from, uh, you know, females as inferior explicitly. So we do have these kind of you know equal rights, equal opportunities. Women aren't inferior. Uh, but you know it's transitioned to women are different. So we have this coexistence of gender egalitarian uh, perspectives with gender essentialist ones. So women and men are kind of uh, quite different, and those two can coexist quite peacefully. And I think in terms of what will happen in terms of social structure, you know, who's doing which kinds of roles, you know, it's anyone's guess. I think what's going to happen next. I wouldn't like to predict, you know. Our society has been for so long organized around these categories of men and women, male, male, female, that people have, you know, exactly as you said, they have this kind of like, I need to know, <laughs> I need to know which category you belong to in a way that I don't need to know whether your belly button is an, is an innie or, or an outie. Oh, if it was only a question like, are you an innie or an outie? If we could all discuss, as your students, Cordelia, and your friends, Ronks, with respect and compassion and genuine interest. This has been hugely interesting for me. Thank you both for your conversation. Dr. Ronks, thank, thank you so you. very, very much. Cordelia, fine. Thank you, Cordelia. Thank you so much. Thanks, it's been a great pleasure. Brides nowadays only rarely promise to obey. Once, they used to promise to be bonny and buxom. In the final episode, I'll be looking at the history of weddings with Rachel Lennon, author of Wedded Wife, A Feminist History of Marriage, and writer and founder of the everyday sexism project, Laura Bates. How women in history caught their husbands, how they got rid of them again, and those who never bothered at all. The Normal Women podcast was written and presented by me, Philippa Gregory, and features the voice talents of Claire Corbett, James Good, Melanie Gutteridge, and Rufus Wright. The producer is Marilyn Rust. Executive producer is Kate Ford. Sound design is by Tom Birchall and includes original music by Juliet Pochin. Commissioning editor for William Collins is Arabella Pike. My book, Normal Women, 900 Years of Making History, published by William Collins, is also available as an audiobook. There are links to both in the show notes. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.